at how this passage affects our minds, our hearts, and our actions. So if you're with me in Ephesians, I'm going to start, like I said, in chapter 1, verse 15, and I'll be reading through chapter 2, verse 10. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave them, or gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills, who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, thank you for this letter. Thank you for your apostle Paul. Thank you for what he has written. And I pray that we would put it in our hearts we would remember these words, that we would apply them to our lives, and that we would be able to rise up every day, recognize these truths, and that we'd be able to live accordingly. God, help me pay attention to what you have said. Guide my words so that I do not speak falsehood, but only speak truth. God, if there are falsehoods spoken, I pray that they would be deafened, that they would not be heard. God, only your truth. Work in our hearts, change them. Make us be more like Christ, so that we may glorify you. If you notice with me, then chapter 2 begins with and. It is there to connect Christ's experience to ours. Jesus was dead, and you were dead too. This state of death is different, though, and Paul gives us the characteristics. We were spiritually dead, killed by trespasses and sin. There are many similarities between Ephesians and Romans, and really most of Paul's letters. And I've even heard, heard it described that Ephesians is sort of a summary of Romans, uh, though it has different application. 
This means, though, that we can find several verses that correspond here. For example, Paul wrote to the Romans, the wages of sin is death. James would have agreed. In his letter, he wrote, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. This isn't sickness or a handicap. Sin kills you. It kills us. Not only does it kill us, but we're already dead. There are many analogies out there that attempt to explain this, make it easier to understand. Some have said we're dying of an illness with a medicinal remedy offered. Some have said we're drowning, we're flailing and kicking at the surface of the water. But these fail to capture the exact language that Paul uses. You're dead. R.C. Sproul gives, I think, the best analogy, and perhaps you may have heard it before. He says, instead, we're corpses at the bottom of the sea. It's hopeless. We're beyond. It's beyond belief, because we're dead. It's not that we're in a ship in a storm being threatened with death. We're dead. Why, though? Why does sin cause death? I think the answer lies in the one who gave and created life to begin with. God is life. And sin is living a perverted, distorted pattern than what's found in God's holy being. What's interesting is that the usage of the word dead gives the idea of passivity as well as rottenness. Dead person doesn't do anything. But Paul goes on to explain that we're still active. He says these trespasses and sins... We walked in them. Walking gives a deeper meaning to just being biologically alive. It's an active lifestyle. For example, a person with a job, as opposed to someone who lies on a couch all day. The first, we'd say, has a life, so to speak. And to the second one, we'd say to him, get a life. <laughs> so the trespasses and sins that were all drowned... Or, the, the trespasses and sins that we are drowned in are also the pattern or route at sea that we're still in. We're walking zombies of sin. And walking also gives a sense of moving in a particular direction. It has a purpose, so to speak. And in this case, it is the clear opposite way, away from God, and straight to eternal death. If the ocean had an edge, like people believed hundreds of years ago, that's where we're going. This walk is described as following this world and the prince of the power of the air. It's devilish. It's demonic and satanic. Everything against the creator. It's hostile. It's hateful, rebellious, blasphemous, self-centered, ungrateful. And this life is opposed to God. And we live this way from birth. No one has to be taught to be self-centered. We have to teach our toddlers not to be selfish, to share. But this might raise some red flags for you. You might say, hold on. I'll admit, the world is pretty rough. People can be pretty bad. But this is a result of our environments, the way we're raised. Or in other religions, like Hinduism, the problem is that we're all ignorant of the one divinity that's in each of us. Or in Buddhism, the problem is that we have desires. 
And the solutions for each of these lie in the person themselves, individually. He or she is supposed to focus enough on the problem in order to be the solution for themselves. Meditate or study enough, and you can solve your ignorance. Realize your divinity. Be disciplined enough, and you can rid yourself of your desires and move on to what Buddhism claims is true non-existence, Zen, Nirvana. Besides the many philosophical problems in these systems, I don't believe they correspond to reality at all. They simply aren't the truth that we're dealing with. It doesn't take an educated philosopher to realize that, uh, as Buddhism would say, that you know, it's just desires that are wrong in the world. There's not really evil or badness. The most simple counter-argument that can be thrown in that face is history, the Holocaust. Countless conquerors who have rampaged through the world and, and killed and slaughtered. There is real, true evil. Paul goes on to address the first dispute, I think, uh, that our problems lie with our environments. He describes the prince as at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And he goes on further to say, we are by nature children of wrath. As Jesus says in John, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We can also look to Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And in Romans 2.5 he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. So granted... Our environments and upbringings have real impacts on us. But our sins are our own. Before we ever question the goodness of God, it is only appropriate to question the goodness of man. As Jesus taught, no one is good but God. All of us have fallen short. We've desecrated the Ten Commandments. If not outwardly, then in our hearts. From the moment of existence, we must be taught the first and second greatest commandments for the simple fact they reveal we can't and don't keep them. But why? Why can't we? Why don't we keep them? What do I mean that we desecrate the Ten Commandments, if not outwardly, than in our hearts? To answer that, we have to understand what Paul says is true human nature. Because we are sons and daughters of disobedience, we are children of wrath. We sin because we, by nature, live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, not the law of God. Lest you think like the rich young ruler who believed, hey, I've kept the Ten Commandments, but he didn't have a generous heart. Pay attention with me to what Paul says. He says we are like the rest of mankind. No one is better than the other. It applies to everyone. The Buddhist, the Hindu. It's 
not about ignorance or having desires. It's about having the wrong desires. Some may have different dispositions, personalities, or inclinations to particular sins, but in no way does that determine if someone is or isn't dead. The truth is, we are all dead in our hearts. One of my teachers from the past put it to me this way, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's the nature of our hearts. And Jesus said it like this, you haven't committed adultery? Well, if you lust, you have an adulterous heart. You've never murdered anyone? Well, if you, uh, have, if you have anger against someone, then you have the same heart as a murderer. It's not about your outward behaviors. It's your sinful, rebellious hearts of stone inside your dead souls, heading for the edge of the cliff to eternal death, perdition, complete and utter loss and destruction of one's soul. And then we have these words. We have these words. But God. What more beautiful, glorious words could be put together in any language? But God. These two words have the ability to flip the entire world on its head. They change everything. Up to this point, Paul has basically said, you're so evil, you are basically dead, and on your way to eternal death, you were rebels by nature, you deserved wrathful judgment, but that should trap us, or that should stop us in our tracks right there. That's how you read the Bible. Every three little word is important and has meaning. So imagine with me a villain a thief who has broken into a king's castle in another country, and he's taken it. The king sends messengers, but they are killed by the servants of the castle who have fallen sway to this murderous thief. To appeal further with the people, the king sends his son. They kill him too. Now, imagine the father, the king of the castle himself, arrives. He shows up, and the servants are reminded his goodness and power. And instead of cowering in fearful repentance, they spit at him in defiance. If this were a real country, and we were hearing about it, we would certainly expect the king would have these people executed immediately. But, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved, he spared his people, his sheep, and they were made known to his mercy, love, kindness, and grace. They knew God was good, but they, but that they, and that they were not, but they never realized just how good he is. But Paul goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. Before going over this verse, I want to read a parallel passage from Romans 5. Remember I said there's a lot of correspondence between the two. Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Jesus died for us to make peace, even though we were the rebels. And 
even when we were dead, he made us alive. So remember with me uh, what R.C. Sproul said, that we are corpses at the bottom of the sea. Let me give the exact quote. He said, if we're going to use analogies, let's be accurate. The man isn't going under for the third time. He is stone cold dead at the bottom of the ocean. That's where you once were when you were dead in sin and trespasses and walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And while you were dead, hath God revived you together with Christ. God dove to the bottom of the sea and took that drowned corpse and breathed into it the breath of his life and raised you from the dead. And it's not that you were dying in a hospital bed of a certain illness, but rather, when you were born, you were dead on arrival. That's what the Bible says, that we are morally stillborn. As you can probably tell, he was referring to the same text from Scripture. But focus on what he says about God, that he dove to the bottom of the sea and took you and breathed into you the breath of his life and raised you from the dead. Now, I've been on several rafting trips, several different rivers. If you ask my wife what I always want to do when we're off, she'll tell you I want to be in the river. I want to be in the water, preferably kayak. Now, a few years back, I was with a group, and I was placed in a boat with poor swimmers. Some were completely unable to swim. Some were actually even physically handicapped. At that time, I was swimming a lot, and so I was a pretty strong swimmer. And so the group leader placed me in that boat just in case. This was uh, not like Broad River. It had multiple Class 5 rapids. I would have been in danger if I fell in. But I was very vigilant that day, and thankfully there weren't any accidents. Um, but I was still a very nervous wreck. And think about this with me, though. I may have been able to rescue a person who was stuck in the water. But if we came across a corpse, there's not a thing in my power that I could begin to do. I can't give him CPR. What we have is not just a God who is good, merciful, and gracious. We have a God who all things are possible for him. He is completely able to save, and he does. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see the parallels from chapter 1? Do you see why I began reading so far back? The same omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign, magnificent, merciful God who raised Jesus from the dead used that same power to raise us from spiritually corrupt death and made us alive with Christ. And the parallel even continues. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look back with me to, to verse 20 through 21. <clears throat> when he raised him from the dead and seated him, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he seated us with him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Us with him. And the same power, the immeasurable greatness of his power, is acted toward us who believe. God doesn't save us with that power and keep us where we are. We have a great and grand hope to look forward to. Why? What is Paul talking about when he says, in this age, but also the age to come? And again, in the coming ages. He says clearly, so that he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But when? When is this age? God's already revived us. What other time is Paul talking about? I think if we look elsewhere, like 2 Thessalonians or John's Revelation, we read about the coming judgment and wrath. We see that there is another salvation we experience. We miss that wrath. Why does he do it? Why did he even create the universe in Genesis 1? Because he wanted to show and share his loving grace. So, we see our natural state here. We see the transformation or regeneration. But how does it happen? What's the instrument or tool that God uses or gives to activate this change? Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Through faith. What, is that, what does this mean? Faith in what? Like blind belief? No, I don't think so. Wayne Grudem explains it this way, and we'll see, I think he affirms what Paul says. He asks, why did God choose faith as the means by which we receive justification? He asks this uh, as opposed to any other virtue, so to speak, such as love, joy, or contentment, humility, etc. So why faith? Grudem explains, because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my own works any longer. I know that I can never make myself righteous before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to give me a righteous standing before God. Grudem says, faith is the exact opposite of trusting in ourselves, and therefore it is the attitude that perfectly fits salvation that depends not at all on our own merit, but entirely on God's free gift of grace. And you see how this is counter to the Buddhist philosophy or the Hinduist philosophy. And I think Paul, Paul would agree with Grudem's explanation of what uh, Paul wrote. Because he wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think Grudem's explanation sounds very much in line with this. So to use one more analogy from R.C. Sproul, he said to imagine two individuals hearing the gospel proclaimed. One is born again, as Jesus puts it in John 3, while the other isn't. By all accounts, they're very similar people. There's no real difference between the two. They have the same upbringing, they have the same personality, interests, likes. 
So was the first person more inclined to salvation by some inherent moral values? No. Remember what Paul has already said. Everyone is dead in sin. Everyone is a son or daughter of disobedience. Everyone is by nature a child of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not after we had faith and were good, he made us alive and raised us up, and this is not your own doing, so that no one may boast. This is why the reformers from Martin Luther on were so firm in their insistence that justification, being put in a righteous standing before God, comes not through faith plus merit or good works, but only through faith alone. This is the 500th year since the Reformation, since Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses. And we get to celebrate that justification not through faith plus merit or good works. Because we wouldn't be able to do it. We're dead. We don't have the ability to have faith plus works or merit. We only have faith alone. Okay. So we were dead and raised up by grace through faith, not a result of works. Is that it? No wrath for our rebellious sins? Is our faith just uh, trusting in, in God's goodness? Yes and no to both questions. There is no wrath for our sins, for us. And it is faith in God's goodness, but also in his work done on the cross. Jesus bore our wrath. Remember, the wages of sin is death. That, that wage is there. But what about a person who doesn't sin or even have a sinful heart? He doesn't have to be punished. He's not a rebel. He's perfect. And this is only possible, of course, with God. And so we see he became a man and dwelt among us. Then he was framed for our crime or for crimes that he didn't commit, but went to the cross willingly to die in our place for atonement. There was a penalty due for our sins. Death. And we were enemies, separated and hostile towards God. We needed reconciliation and atonement, but we couldn't do it ourselves. We were dead. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. We have the words, but God, being rich in mercy. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our penalty in our place as our substitute, willingly. And the Father raised him up just as he raises up his saints and as he'll raise us up physically on the last day. So what, what until then? Do we sit idly by and just wait? No. For, as Paul says, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works do not produce salvation, and they have no place in it. But salvation does produce good works. Because we are his workmanship. He is crafting us. He is working us. And God has prepared for us to do them. Just as he had the work of Christ the cross prepared for him before the foundation of the world. 
An interesting aspect of this passage is most of it is in past tense. He's talking to Christians already born again. This tells us the gospel is not just for non-Christians, but it should remain the foundation of our lives. Paul says these good works are prepared that we should walk in them. He changes tense. Do you see that? Look with me from the beginning. Were dead. Once walked. Once lived. Were children of wrath. Made us alive. Been saved. Raised. Seated. Created. What's interesting is the change of walking from the beginning to now. You once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You lived. You were by nature children of wrath. But now, because we are children of God, we are to walk a different life. We are to walk in good works. Before, we were sinning because we were sinners. Now, we walk in good works because we're saints. We walk as God's workmanship, rather than being worked in by the prince of the power of the air. What is this new walk or new way of living? We can look over in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul gives us specific examples. It's very easy to uh, just read straight through Ephesians. It even only takes roughly 20 minutes. And it's very tempting to, if I was going to preach on these 10 verses, it's very easy just to continue reading uh, because Paul builds on himself uh, very naturally. But let's read from 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you, speaking the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And here, starting from verse 25, Paul gives us specific examples of application of how we are to live, therefore. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work or labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. And so you see, he, he turns everything. If you were a liar, you should now speak truth. If you, were, if you were a person who gets angry, don't allow that anger to cause you to sin. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. If you stole in your former life, work now so that you can give to the person in need. Paul goes on to say in chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up 
for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be seen or must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I very much wanted to paint the darkest, bleakest, bleakest, and most hopeless picture I could for you in the beginning. I wanted to describe something reminiscent of the painting The Scream, or a story out of Edgar Allan Poe. But I would do a disservice to you if when I then described the pivot of events and the new life as a sort of equal opposite. What I mean is this, if I described your death in Christ as equal to the glory of living in Christ. The glory in life with Jesus is infinitely more abundant and rich and incredible and wonderful than the pain and misery we experience here. Last week, uh, Joey preached from 2 Peter 1, and let me read for you again verses 3 through 4. Peter wrote, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. And even more clearly, Paul says in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, to be revealed to us. So I urge all of you today to live a life of repentance. This means continually recognizing your sins and killing them. As John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Repent. Have faith in Jesus and worship God for how great he is and for raising you up. Paul wrote, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for this opportunity to hear from your word. Thank you for, thank you for breathing new life into us when we were still your enemies. We were still hostile towards you. When we were waging war against you, when we were being worked in by the prince of the power of the air, you still took us. You still breathed life into us. You forgave us. You made us your children. You have an inheritance saved up for us. 
something for us to look forward to, a great and glorious inheritance. God, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for telling us of the salvation that is available to you. We thank you for diving in the bottom of the ocean, pulling us up. Son, who willingly became flesh, accepted our penalty, carried his cross up the hill, allowed himself to be nailed onto a wood that by his own power he created that tree. We thank you for his sacrifice, for taking our penalty. Your amazing power that you displayed in raising him up. Your great omnipotent power. So God, work in our hearts. Drive us to repentance. And I pray that we would worship you for being, for being great and merciful. And thank you for all of your blessings. And thank you for your son. We pray in his name. Amen.